Hello again. It's great to be back. My wife, uh, Sharon, with me. She was also here last time. And uh, does my heart and her heart good to see your faithfulness to the Lord and to his truth and uh, to his word and uh, to his people and to his house. Uh, You are in the right place today. The place the people of God need to be on uh, the Lord's day is in the Lord's house. And that's where we are. If you have your Bibles today, um, or the church Bible, I believe many of you have there, I'd like you to turn to the first psalm, Psalm 1. Like a number of the psalms, it's not very long. Actually, some of the psalms are very long, are they not? But this one isn't. So if you will, please uh, listen attentively to the Word of God. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind driveth away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. This psalm, Psalm 1, grounds the entire Psalter. The psalms are not randomly arranged. Old Testament theologians increasingly recognize that. You can't take the 150th psalm and stick it in the middle or the second psalm and move it toward the end. The sequence of the psalms, I believe, is divinely arranged. Not necessarily, quote, inspired that way, verbally inspired, but nonetheless, God providentially had these psalms canonically arranged as they are. Psalms 1 and 2 actually are foundational to the entire rest of the Psalter. Psalm 1 is the psalm of the blessed man, person, woman, young person. Literally, actually, in Hebrew, it says something like this. Oh, how happy. Oh, how blessed is the one who does or does not do these various things that are mentioned here. Now, it doesn't mean our view of happy such that, oh, I woke up in a happy mood today. That's not what it's referring to. It means a life that is full of rich joy, a life of fullness in the Lord, enjoying the bounty of God's goodness and creation. That's implied in this happiness. Now, we cannot sidestep the force of this assertion. The righteous ones, the righteous ones, live or are called to live a full, comprehensive, robust life. 
observing some Christians today and listening to them, you wouldn't get that idea. You'd get the idea, following the Lord is such a horrible, terrible burden, and I can barely go on. It's just so hard for me. My whole Christian life has been so difficult. I'm being a little facetious, but not too much. But the life of the blessed is not one of depression. It's not one of fear. It's not one of pessimism. This doesn't mean that we'll be smiling all the time. This is not the prosperity gospel, the health and wealth gospel. The promises, however, to the righteous is that they will live a full and a rich life if they'll just do what the psalmist mentions here. Psalm 1 posits a uh, very sharp contrast, a very sharp contrast between the righteous and the wicked. And actually, I've come to believe some other Old Testament theologians, I'm not an Old Testament theologian, they have come to believe that this actually is the theme of the Psalter. Now, if you were to ask us, we might say, well, the theme of the Psalter is the heart's turning toward God and worship of God, and that would not be untrue. But it wouldn't be entirely true either. In many ways, the entire theme of the Psalter is laid out right here. The antithesis, let's use that word, the antithesis between the righteous and the unrighteous, the godly and the ungodly. The divide between these two starts right now in human history. But then notice as we go through the psalm, we get to the very end, verses 5 and 6. This antithesis persists into eternity. It does not end in eternity. So the message today is about two ways, two people, two destinies. But the title is perhaps a little unusual. The gospel, according to Psalm 1. The gospel, according to Psalm 1. I'd like to stress today, and briefly expounding this passage, how intrinsic this truth of Psalm 1 is to our faith. In fact, to the gospel. You see, the gospel is not merely our uh, reception of a message. The gospel is not merely that we hear the message that Christ died, and he rose again, we place faith in him, and we're saved. Oh, that is a glorious gospel truth at the very heart of the gospel. John Frame would say that is the gospel narrowly considered, and it is correct. But the Bible doesn't always use the term gospel quite that way. There is the gospel in the broad sense. The gospel is the good news that in Jesus Christ, God is overturning all of the evil that was launched in Genesis chapter 3. And when I say all the evil, I mean all of it. Where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. Not simply in our hearts, but everywhere incrementally. And human society and life and culture. The gospel, therefore, is cosmic good news. God, you see, is restoring holiness. He's restoring righteousness 
in the earth that was lost in Eden. And he does this by restoring righteous people. That is to say, the person mentioned in Psalm 1. Now, have you begun to see the connection between Psalm 1 and the gospel? God is not simply getting people ready to go to heaven, the afterlife. He is restoring the godly in the earth. In that sense, Psalm 1, you see, is a part of the gospel message. God, you see, is creating the eternal binary, the eternal separation. Now, I must say that this uh, distinction is deeply unpopular in our time. Ours is an increasingly non-judgmental, egalitarian age. Now, it might be different here in England. Maybe the English, the British society is filled with righteous people, righteous politicians. Isn't that correct? Maybe that's some of the fake news that we heard in the United States. We're often warned not to draw sharp lines morally. You may have heard about the man in America that had this sex change to become a woman. But now that wasn't enough. He, um, in his autonomy, wants to become a dragon. And so he's having his body modified so that he will look like a dragon. And by the way, who are you to judge? If he wants to do that, why not? That is the logic of non-judgmentalism and of relativism. Brother and sister, that is the antithesis of Psalm 1. Psalm 1 is all about making righteous judgments. Righteous judgments. And I would say this, you and I cannot please God if we refuse to make righteous judgments. If we are non-judgmental, we cannot follow Jesus Christ. Sadly, the church, even elements of the supposed conservative church, collaborate with this evil. You may have heard of this conference back in the United States called the Revoice Conference, attempting to get a spear nose into for the evangelical and even the conservative Presbyterians to support, little by little, to support SSA, same-sex attraction, which will, of course, lead, if not stop, to same-sex marriage and homosexuality, a diluting of God's standards. Know this, in contrast, a chief goal of the gospel is to vanquish evil, and that is what the Psalter is all about. Let's examine the text just a little more closely, and I will not be long today. I hear there's a picnic afterwards, is that right? Then I assure you I won't be long today. I want us to notice first in the first three verses, the blessed, righteous man. And in the first verse, his separation. This is the negative dimension. The negative dimension of the happy, joyous, righteous man. The righteous man, the righteous person, avoids godless, unbelieving advice. That's what it means, counsel, advice. Of course, several thousand years ago, you got exposure to this advice personally. That's the only real human contact there was, essentially. There were writings, of course, but for the most part, you would talk with people. And so it's saying, don't hang around people that would give you bad advice. But today... Today, the ungodly counsel is ubiquitous 
That's a nice long word that just means what? Come on, don't act like a bunch of Presbyterians. What? <laughs> Everywhere. 24-7 on the television. 24-7 on your smartphone. 24-7 on the computer. You can get ungodly advice. Live for consumption. Live for what you can get. You are autonomous. No one can tell you what to do. Paint your life, your inner desires, as beautiful pastels and create your own reality. There are no consensual sexual boundaries. As long as it's consensual, all sex is permitted. Porn is harmless. Men and women are identical. And I could go on, couldn't I? On and on and on. Crazy. Wrong. Godless. But notice what he says here. Blessed is the man that walks not on the council. He says, don't just avoid sin. He says, avoid that very council. In other words, and this is fundamental, young people. So good to see you young people here today under the preaching of the word and worshiping with the people of God. He's saying, don't put yourself in a situation intentionally where you can hear this counsel. That's what he's saying. He's not just saying, don't sin, live a righteous life. The writer is saying more than that. He says, avoid. Blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the ungodly. He stays away, not only from ungodliness, but from the counsel. So don't expose yourself to people and websites and articles and tweets and Snapchats and books and magazines and on and on that give ungodly counsel. Somebody might say, well, Andrew, that's sort of difficult to do because we live in an evil world. Yes, sometimes we cannot avoid exposure to it. But the psalmist is essentially saying, don't go looking for it. Avoid it. Then he says, don't stand in the way or the path or pathway, it means, of sinners. Now, as I was preparing this, a thought struck me. The psalmist is presupposing that sin is not static. Sin has a direction. Or we could put it this way. Evil has an eschatology. Evil has an eschatology. Some of you know in reading the book of Acts that the early Christians were called people of the way. People of the way. That means we don't simply profess Christ. There is a way. There is a path of righteousness on which righteous people, believers, walk. Similarly, there is a way, it's saying, a pathway of evil on which evil walk. There is, here's another word, a trajectory. And that path usually starts very gingerly and very gently with, for example, sinful thoughts. There was an old uh, Methodist evangelist many years ago that said something that I will never forget. It really is harrowing. I hope that you will remember this. Behind every tragedy of human character, there is a long process of wicked thinking. We look at someone and that person, whether it's uh, a drug addiction, 
or adultery or just foolish, sinful financial decisions. We look at a person and a life is destroyed and a marriage is destroyed and we often think, how did that happen? It's just one day this person woke up and made a bad decision. That's false. That's false. Behind every tragedy of human character, there's a long process of wicked thinking. I wonder if there are some of us today that have begun to entertain thoughts, thoughts of autonomy, thoughts of rebellion, thoughts of lust, thoughts of a lax attitude toward the church of Jesus Christ, evil thoughts, as we've heard today in some of the readings, hateful thoughts toward others, brothers and sisters. Evil has an eschatology. If we don't arrest those thoughts by the power of the Spirit, those thoughts will lead us to places that we sadly cannot yet imagine. Behind every tragedy of human character, there's a long process of wicked thinking. And then notice, please, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Seat there, you might have in your translation, uh, assembly or congregation. Seat certainly does not mean a chair like you and I sit on. It means a sort of, like Jesus said in the New Testament, talks about the seat of the fair, the seat of Moses and so on. It's basically an assembly of people who are in concert, who are in agreement. It means a, a session, those with common interests. Now, this is a fascinating truth. Evil is often communal. Evil is often communal. Now today we've rightly had a revival of strong opposition to a sinful individualism. Do we not have a sinfully individualistic culture? I get to do what I want to do, and no one can tell me what to do. Do you know the Church of Jesus Christ is a stark testimony against individualism? And that's a beautiful thing. Now, all of us, I presume, almost all of us, have like smartphones, and we have a customized playlist. Come on, right? I mean, you like your own music. But you know what? You didn't get to come in today. And I didn't get to come in today and say, Pastor Steve, while everyone else is doing their thing, I'm going to listen to my customized playlist. And when everyone else is confessing the creed, the Nicene Creed. I found a new creed. I wrote it myself. And I will confess it. No, you didn't get to do that. You didn't get to do that. Because the church is one place where at least once a week, we all do everything together. Isn't that a beautiful thing? In our individualistic age. Yet we, almost, we also need to remember, however, that evil has a communalism. Not just the church. Evil has a communalism. You see, the wicked relish to find one another. You ever notice that? Wicked people gravitate toward one another. They join in their scoffing of God, of biblical truth, of biblical morality. And then, of course, they lust to seduce others. That's another chapter 1, most of you know. Read Proverbs chapter 1. Have you read that in Proverbs chapter 1? 
The godly counsel from the Father to the Son. If sinners try to entice you, do not consent. They will say, come with us. We're going to do secret evil things. We're going to lay in wait. We're going to do evil toward us. Come on, it's, it's going to be really exciting. And the godly Father says, don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. Avoid the evil community. This means a willingness to stand against the evil crowd. Now, some of you, uh, no doubt, uh, will be going off to university. Some of you are in a university. And unless you're going to a Christian university or a Christian college, and perhaps even, sadly, in some cases there, you're going to be surrounded by uh, professors and teachers that do not believe the Bible is the inspired and infallible Word of God, that can't affirm the Nicene Creed, that don't believe in biblical sexual morality. And some of them will do everything they can to seduce a godly and virtuous young person, first intellectually and then morally, and that's always the way that it happens, changing your mind to change hearts, to change actions. And you're going to have to learn to say one word that is actually one of the most important words in the English language, apart from the name of God and these great glorious theological truths, one of the most important words in the English language, particularly today, for a Christian to say is no. No. Preacher once said, I'll never forget, he said, learn to say no. It'll stand you in better stead than learning to read Greek. Well, there could be some truth in that. Say no when you're enticed to do evil. Anything that conflicts with the Word of God, anything that conflicts with the Word of God is wrong. It doesn't have to be discussed. It doesn't have to be dialogued about. It doesn't have to be debated. If it's contrary to the written Word of God, it's wrong. It's evil. But then we note the positive element. But his delight, notice, his delight is in the law of the Lord. Now, law there, as it is often in the Old Testament, is the Hebrew Torah. We just say today the Torah. It's, it means the instruction. It means the teaching. Here specifically, it means the Decalogue. Oh, how misguided today's attitude is toward the law. Did you hear today the Old Testament reading? I believe it's from the book of Amos about the integrity of the law of God. What false ideas so many Christians have that the law... The Torah is somehow a legalistic burden. Oh, it's such a heavy, heavy burden. And thank God that Jesus came. He emancipated us so that now we can live in the Spirit and essentially live any way we want and have forgiveness of our sins. My friends, there's nothing biblical on that. That's the evil of lawlessness, antinomianism. Notice, please, what the writer is saying. The man, the person full of life delights, delights in the law of God, the Decalogue, and of course in the New Covenant era, by extension, all of that written revelation. The blessed man is happy and he longs to read the Word of God. I have a question. Do you like long to read the Word of God? I've got plenty of sins and failures. You can ask my wife. She'll, she knows a few of them. But sometimes I'm just sitting down and I've got a little extra time and I said, I just want to read the Word of God. So I'll just pick up the Bible and start reading in Jeremiah or 2 Timothy or something. Godly Christian people like to sit down and read the Word of God. 
You see, the gospel reorients our attitude toward God's word. Notice it says also, he meditates day and night. In Hebrew, that word meditate is very interesting. We hear the word meditate today, and we often think of Eastern ideas of sort of silent, utterly quiet contemplation. Maybe attended with a yoga session. But that's not the biblical notion of meditate at all. It actually means to mumble quietly. To mumble. You know what I'm talking about. You hear a, maybe a song in the morning, right? And you're, throughout the day you're like singing. That's sort of mumbling. That's meditating. That's the idea. All day long we're mumbling, meditating on the Word of God. John Wenham in his fine book on the Psalms makes this point. He said, nobody read the Bible silently in biblical times. That really struck me. Nobody read the Bible silently in biblical times. Well, for one thing, there weren't a whole bunch of Bibles around. They would memorize it, and they would, that's how it would be remembered. <laughs> they would say it. They would say it among the people of God. They would say it among their families, and they would mumble it throughout the day. The point is that the Bible is a constant reference point. And by the way, before I move on, this means we must read the Word of God. Now, I know that sounds so simplistic, but I can assure you, many Christians don't understand that point or don't act on it. To meditate on the Word means you need to read the Word of God. You need to get up in the morning, even if it's only a single chapter, and read and pray, Lord, open up this truth to me, and may I meditate on it throughout the day. You can't know the Word of God, you can't meditate on the Word of God unless you read the Word of God. So I urge you to do that. And if you say, well, I don't really have time for that because I have to post seven updates on Facebook. If you have time to spend on Facebook, you certainly have time to spend before the face of God and His Word. It is this word that most effectively, under the power of the Spirit, shapes our worldview. All of our decisions are designed to be shaped by the word of God on which we meditate. Then he comes to the promise in verse 3 that this person, this person who does these things, who doesn't do certain things and does do others, will flourish like a tree. That's a metaphor, or similar metaphors throughout the scriptures. Lush, fruitful, tree. Perhaps the most well-known one in the New Testament, there are a number there, would be John 15, the vine and the branches. Not quite identical to this, but nevertheless, that similar idea. A fullness and a flourishing. Now that metaphor highlights some truths, one of which is the blessed person, the happy person, avoiding evil and meditating in the word is permanent. That's the whole point of being planted. Permanent, not escape. Planted permanence. God intends for the meek to inherit the earth. The godly to inherit. Many of our Christian brothers and sisters tragically don't understand that. They see evil. And they're looking for an escape, aren't they? They want to escape the evil. My friends, God's way is not for the godly to escape the evil, but to vanquish the evil. 
God's Son did not escape the evil. He vanquished the evil on the cross and in the resurrection. Ask God to help you by His grace to vanquish the evil on the earth. That's what He's doing. Not only permanence, but prosperity, which we cannot evade. A full, rich life, he says there, brings forth its fruit in its season. His leaf won't wither. Whatever he does will prosper. Obviously, that doesn't mean a success in 21st century eyes of consumerism, although it can involve that. It means God's blessings in all we do. A full life lived before God, blessing all that we touch. A good, strong family and friends and a church community and uh, provision, material provision and joy. We can say life to the full. Life to the full. A robust life. That's what the psalmist is referring to and promising. We then are God's instrument in establishing a righteous world and disestablishing unrighteousness, which leads us to the final point, and we're almost done. Notice in verses 4 through 6, the cursed and wicked man or person. This is the great antithetical turn of the chapter, the great turn, that expression, the wicked, the ungodly are not so. That's the antithesis. Everything that is said about the righteous person, the blessed righteous person before, everything that is said about him or her before cannot and will not and must not apply to the unrighteous. That's the antithesis. It's an observable difference. I'd like here to refute a popular misconception that many Christians hold today. It's a very mistaken logic based on a little truth that's carried to a false conclusion. Well, it says we are all equally sinners. All equally sinners. And therefore, we dare not criticize Lady Gaga. We dare not criticize those leading the homosexual agenda, because after all, we are just as sinful as they are. And by the grace of God, we would be just like them. There's an element of truth in that, in that we are all sinners for sure, and fall short of God's glory. And apart from the grace of God, none of us could stand, as the scripture says there, none of us could stand righteously in the judgment. That element is true. But I must assure you on the authority of the word of God, we are not all equally sinners. There are two kinds of sinners. There are redeemed sinners and there are unredeemed sinners. Nobody reading Psalm 1 could come to that idea that everybody is equally sinful. That's not what the writer is saying. He is certainly implying that the righteous are righteous by grace, but they are nonetheless righteous. And someone says, well, but Andrew, the problem is, I don't want to use that word very much because it will... If I say that I'm righteous, it will sound proud if I try to be righteous, and it may cause someone else to feel bad. But my friends, godly guilt is a good thing. It's a good thing. It's called conviction of sin. Unrighteousness needs to be exposed. And our Lord himself even asserted that. 
Why did they hate the Lord? Because he was light and he came into darkness and exposed their evil deeds. And he also said about us, though we're certainly not sinless as he is, nonetheless, his righteous people made righteous by his grace, they too, by their path of righteousness, will expose evil. So I have a question for you and one for me, and it's very sobering. Does our daily walk in the world expose other people's unrighteousness? I don't know about that, Andrew. That might just offend someone. Well, that's a good thing. Because what is God planning to do? Overturn unrighteousness. Overturn unrighteousness. Don't be ashamed of being one of God's own. Being the recipient of the grace of God. Not of our own works. Not of our own righteousness. There is no room in the Christian faith for self-righteousness. But mark it down. There is absolutely room for righteousness. Do not allow your opposition to self-righteousness lead you to an opposition to righteousness. They are not the same thing. Or else the writer of Psalm 1 was a liar. And if you believe that, good luck with that. There's a moral chasm. The unbelievers are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Big stress on permanence versus transience. The wicked. Oh my, how they seem to grow and flourish. This is a theme of Psalms uh, 73, Psalm 37. Some of you have read the Psalms know exactly what I'm talking about. The psalmist says, why do I feel beaten down? And here's a wicked... Oh, rising up and up and up. And he says, then understood I their end. And elsewhere, he says, God raised them up so he will cut them down. God likes to see the proud wicked reduced to shambles. Those who set themselves against him. He says, then in verse 5, that the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment. He means by that, can't survive the final judgment. Can't sustain the withering judgment. Before a sovereign and a holy God. Only those who have the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And also personal righteousness of sanctification. He says, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. History is catapulting, I would say, to this final separation. This moral separation today. The church versus evil communities. Dope dens. The Christian family versus the house of the sexual revolution. The Christian homeschools versus ungodly universities. That will become the final eternal separation one day. The gospel, you see, is calculated to create this moral distinction. This moral distinction. And we, as the people of God, are his agents in gradually, gradually expelling evil from the earth. This is our calling as the righteous versus the unrighteous. Let us pray. Thank you, Father, for these joyous and nonetheless arresting and sobering truths. Lord, forgive me for my unrighteousness. Forgive us for our unrighteousness. We confessed our sins earlier communally. Lord, help us to live according to our calling by the power of your Spirit. Thank you, Lord, for this congregation and the elders' steves that are leading it with such faithfulness. God, encourage them. As Hebrews tells us, help the congregation to follow them, follow their faith. 
Lord, use us to advance your cause and kingdom while we are on the earth. Father, we pray it in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, who loved us and gave himself for us on the cross. The King of the earth, King of kings and Lord of lords, in his name we pray. Amen.